0: Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: The Russian voices are MiG fighter pilots pursuing an unknown aircraft that had drifted into Soviet airspace possibly gotten look at the nation's nuclear silo or their military assets and was now headed away. Official Soviet policy was to visually inspect any aircraft before targeting, but the base commander and the pilots have one goal, destroy the target. And in doing so, they will escalate the Cold War to its highest pitch since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The target was a Korean Airlines KAL-007 carrying innocent civilians. It has disappeared from Anchorage en route to Seoul, South Korea, August 31st. Passengers of 13 countries, including Korea and Japan and the United States, are aboard, but something else. On board is a congressman, Larry McDonald, a conservative, member of the John Birch Society, and an ardent anti-communist and hardliner on U.S.-Soviet policy. It is Thursday, September 1st, 6.30 a.m., when Secretary of State George Shultz is informed. It takes until noon of that day for any Russian response. And they lie. No plane, they say, was shot down. Shultz knows that the Soviets are lying, tells the ambassador that the answer is unsatisfactory, and they seek more. TAS News, the Russian news agency, provides various cover stories over the next few days. From no plane was shot down to it was a spy plane to perhaps a civilian plane was sent in as a deliberate provocation. Yet, in the midst of all this crisis on Thursday and going into Friday of this week, a strange message comes out of the White House. Larry Speaks, the White House spokesman. The president has no immediate plans to come to Washington. Indeed, Reagan. On Thursday, as this is going on, was at the Western White House, also known as the Ranch in Santa Barbara. He loved that ranch. He would go there 335 days of his presidency, to the point that aides noticed he would breathe a sigh of relief when Air Force One would cross the Rockies. It offered him relaxation from the pressures of the Oval. Many times, the president's schedule submitted to him would come back to the staff, crossed out with the words, more ranch time. This frustrated the aides, who wanted the president in Washington for pressing business. As Reagan told aide Michael Deaver once, Just keep in mind, the more I go to the ranch, the longer I'll live. Now, the ranch was a place where business would conducted in the future. Margaret Thatcher's going to come here. Mikhail Gorbachev's going to come here. Reagan signed bills here. It is outfitted with the latest telecommunications. Of course, the Secret Service have a shed there. Reagan's National Security Advisor is there, as is his military attache. He's on the phone with Secretary of State George Shultz. Reagan makes a brief statement condemning the attack from California regime that so broadly trumpets its vision of peace and global disarmament, and yet so callously and quickly commits a terrorist act to sacrifice the lives of innocent human beings. At the same time, he tells National Security Advisor Bill Clark, We have to be careful not to overreact. Yet what today we would call the optics were terrible. Reporters were buzzing around the spokesperson, Larry Speaks, all day Thursday. Fox News anchor Chris Wallace recently discussed on his network the event, as he was a reporter at the time. Quite frankly, he didn't want to leave, Wallace recounted. But Speaks argued the president had every facility and capacity to perform any function he could in Washington. This was not enough for the media and pundits. Michael Deaver tracks down the president, gets him in his barn, summons him to the phone. Reagan speaks tersely, literally says, Yeah, Mike, what do you want? Deaver now begins to persuade him. People expect the president to be in Washington. Reagan argues that he can do everything from California that he can do from Washington. Yes, and it goes on and it goes on. Finally, Reagan says, Well, it's a stupid idea if you ask me. Slams down the phone and he's on Air Force One. The stewards report that Reagan spent at least an hour of that flight looking out the window. So by Friday evening, as the crisis continues and the Soviets are not changing their story, the president, in ranch garb, comes to the White House and goes directly into a national security meeting. He's presented with a range of options from his policy people. Defense Secretary Casper Weinberg suggests an increased defense posture. Others suggest recall of ambassadors, expulsion of suspected KGB agents. They have some people they've got their eye on. The suggestion is made to cancel Schultz's meeting with the Soviet foreign minister that's supposed to happen the next week. Reagan sits quietly, tapping his pencil on the table. A few times as everyone talks. If arguments start at the table, he taps a little harder. Cancel the arms negotiations that are set to happen in October. Economic sanctions against the Soviets. This is where Reagan interrupts. Fellas, I don't think we need to do a darn thing. Needless to say, the room was shocked. The cabinet the brass. The entire world will rightly and vigorously condemn the Soviets for this barbarism. Let's remember our long-term objectives. Reagan does speak to the nation four days later. He condemns the action of shooting down the plane that had gone into Soviet space accidentally. He says that there's no legal or moral justification that this will ruin air control, that the entire world is outraged. He's Careful to mention all of the countries that support their condemnation of the Soviets. It's not just the US versus the Soviets. It's France. It's Zaire. It's Korea. It's Japan. But he does something else, something that the CIA is not exactly happy about. He reveals the existence, on the same day of the shooting of the aircraft, of an RT 135, a so called Cobra Ball reconnaissance aircraft, at the site which briefly crossed paths with KL007. Something else. He mentions how different a civilian aircraft looks from the spy aircraft. And there's more. He has tapes that the Japanese intercepted of the Soviet fighter pilots targeting the plane. And he reveals. The Soviets scrambled jet interceptors from a base in Sakhalin Island. Japanese ground sites recorded the interceptor planes radio transmissions their conversations with their own ground control We only have the voices from the pilots the Soviet ground-to-air transmissions were not recorded It's plain however from the pilot's words that he's responding to orders and queries from his own ground control Here is a brief segment of the tape which we're going to play in its entirety for the United Nations Security Council tomorrow (laughs)
0: Those were the voices of the Soviet pilots. In this tape, the pilot
1: who fired the missile describes his search for what he calls the target. He reports he has it in sight. Indeed, he pulls up to within about a mile of the Korean plane, mentions its flashing strobe light, and that its navigation lights are on. He then reports he's reducing speed to get behind the airliner, gives his distance from the plane at various points in this maneuver, and finally announces what can only be called the Korean airline massacre. He says he has locked on the radar, which aims his missiles, has launched those missiles, the target has been destroyed. And he is breaking off the attack. This is Reagan, the broadcaster in action. You almost get the sense he's sportscasting in in Des Moines again, giving the play-by-play for the American people and for the world. The entire transcript of the pilot's communications will be played for a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. Many years later, we'll get the other side from the Soviet air base when Boris Yeltsin releases tapes and other information about the KAL incident in 1992. KAL reveals something interesting. Reagan amps up the rhetoric, gets maximum advantage to U.S. prestige, maximum damage to Soviet prestige, maximum damage to the budding relationship between Europe and the Soviet Union by calling attention to their deceit. But in terms of real steps, Reagan does very little. Cancels some cultural exchanges, suspends what is already suspended. He extends the suspension of AeroFlight, the Soviet airline landing in the United States. This is criticized uh, by many in Congress. The Soviets just shot down a plane. We can almost imagine the reaction of other presidents. Here's what Human Events headline reads. Conservatives dismayed by limp response to Soviets. You know, again, I think it bears repeating that one of the people killed here was a significant conservative congressman. Families of the victims are asking Washington for a response. Time has revealed that the response was likely a correct one. Here's what biographer Stephen Hayward says Reagan's action was shrewd, with one act, the Soviets threw away three years of work on European peace movements to split the NATO alliance. H.W. Brands writes, It was brilliant. For the world audience, he maximized damage to Soviet prestige. And for the Soviet leaders, who he always felt paid more attention to deeds than words, he signaled that he wasn't going to overreact. Reagan allows the meeting between Secretary of State George Shultz and Foreign Minister Gromyko to continue in Madrid. He does tell him to concentrate on the K.L. incident. When he does that, and also on human rights, the Soviets are upset. They have an angry response. What I think George Shultz is going to say in his memoirs is, Reagan's decision to continue with arms negotiations was a signal to the West Germans who are having a lot of problems with protests to counter missiles that the Soviets had put in, aimed at Europe. But West Germans are reading American politics and they see, wow, Reagan didn't suspend the arms negotiations. He took a big political risk. So can we. Michael Deaver said he would weather conservative criticism for a month over his reticence. Once again, he acted according to his own drummer. For a guy that's held up as the ultimate Republican, it's kind of funny that Ronald Reagan didn't become one until he was 51. And even then, it was an afterthought. A moment of show business. What was the source of this change? The key to the puzzle could be a bit of rival. It could be an awful lot of reading. It could be a marginal tax rate. It could be an unknown mentor or a now-infamous chimp. We know this. In 1950, Ronald Reagan was a Democrat supporting Helen Douglas of California, running for Senate, against an opponent that would tar her as a communist. She got Reagan's support. Her opponent was Richard Nixon. Twelve years later, Ronald Reagan would be supporting Richard Nixon for the governorship of California. And as he spoke at a rally, a woman in the crowd said, Are you a Republican? And Reagan said, Not yet. Well, I am a registrar. And she came up to the stage and signed Reagan up right there in front of the crowd as a Republican, finally, in 1962. But something must have happened between those 12 years. It's a monkey! I'm well, sure, it's a monkey. Why didn't you tell me? All these shenanigans take place in a hilarious new Hollywood movie called Bedtime for Bonzo, starring Ronald Reagan, Diana Lynn, and Bonzo, that amazing chick. It starts with the fact that you'll constantly hear Reagan was a movie actor. Reagan was a movie actor. But he really didn't have much of a film career left during the 1950s. Maybe it was him. Maybe it was the audiences. Maybe it was the studios that were biased against him. Maybe it was World War II, which kept him in a special unit of the army designed to create films. Might have done damage to his trajectory as he was just becoming famous before then. The buzzards are starting to gather, he told a columnist about his film career as he was offered a series of B-rolls. Roles that before they wouldn't have even bothered to offer to the movie star Ronald Reagan now were being attempted. One of his last films is his appearance as a psychology professor who, in an attempt to impress the dean of the college whose daughter he is courting, decides to show that he could be a capable and serious and responsible father to raise a child using the most modern methods of the 1950s. But the child is no child at all. In fact, it's a chimp. Bonzo. Actually, the chimp's name was Peggy. Peggy really puts on a show in the movie, and on set as well. At one point, The chimp pulled Reagan's tie so hard it almost strangled the movie star. A star doesn't slip, Reagan said. He's ruined by bad parts. What does all this matter? But a lot of times you'll hear Reagan referred to as a movie actor. And for most people that are operating, older people operating the politics of the 1970s and 1980s, they know Reagan more for his TV roles because his face was constantly on TV. But you still can't separate that TV Reagan from politics completely. That is because, after his film career declines a bit, he is made an offer by Liam o. Bulwar, a General Electric vice president, to become the company spokesperson. But not only that, he will headline a special show on the new medium of TV, General Electric Theater, hosted by Ronald Reagan. He jumped at the chance. He wasn't getting film. He actually switched studios to try to get more roles and wasn't getting them. TV in the 50s was seen as a little bit gimmicky, and the real art was in movies, but he didn't have much of a choice. At this point, he's got three children and no new movies coming in. This special assignment from General Electric would pay him $125,000 per year. In those days, a lot of money. TV show would feature all sorts of stars, people like Fred Astaire, Jimmy Stewart, Tony Curtis. Many people performed on the General Electric Theater show, but it was more. Lemo Bulworth was a master of the new art of corporate public relations. Reagan was the head of a union. Now, it might be, as Reagan's biographer H.W. Bryan said, more of a country club union kind of a partnership between the studios and the actor workers, a union of well-compensated people, not the same as what are your industrial unions, but he was a union head nonetheless. GE had 100,000 employees, even more customers and families, an audience for the TV show of millions. Reagan would not only go on TV, but travel all over the country, spread the word about General Electric, but also about the free market and enterprise. And in doing so, Reagan would get an education in two things conservative politics, retail politics. For Reagan, it was like the public appearances he would make for his movies. He loved it. He'd visit plants. Picnics, rallies around GE's factories, and f- he charmed the women. He'd get buddy buddy with the men. GE's executive team, Bulworth especially, wanted to win their employees' hearts and the hearts of the public. This is because there was a devastating strike in 1946 that had crippled the company. But VP Bulworth was the only division of GE that didn't have a strike because he had implemented some of these methods, and the employees in his division, didn't go along with the union in the same way others did. Reagan's job was part of an entire campaign at GE, including a GE company newsletter, local news around the various plants, corporate information, but would also have political information. And GE had a book club for its employees. They might be treated with a Lewis Henry's, How You Really Earn Your Paycheck, or Henry Hazlitt's, Economics in One Lesson the lesson being that government interferes and costs more than it benefits. So successful was the company and this effort that in 1960, the United Electric Workers' Union strike. The result was not the same as 1946, and they had to settle with G. He did the program through most of the 1950s, and during this time, earning a sizable amount of money, reading the various materials that Bull War and others would give him, I think here was where Reagan made his conversion to more of a conservative ideology. There's an important thing to note, though, that might get one away from thinking that this is some kind of brainwashing program But uh, you know, Ronald Reagan didn't come to the conclusion on his own, is that something's occurring when he's going to these factories. The workers have already been inundated with these kind of materials, but many of them bought into it. And so GE employees that Reagan was meeting at the various factories were different perhaps than the average employees of the 1950s. They had a different ideology because they had been reading these materials and developing questions on their own. He would go to speak and the questions that some of the workers would ask were already kind of, you know, how can we reduce the size of government or how can we learn the right lesson from Britain and the lesson being that they're too socialist or the like. So it wasn't just that Bulwar, a friend and mentor to be sure, was handing Reagan materials and he was reading him on the train at this point. Reagan didn't fly that much. He was reading a lot on the train. In a way, the audience was convincing him as well. There were hiccups, as might be expected by a company with the federal government as the largest customer, attacking the federal government on a routine basis. For one, the Tennessee Valley Authority threatened to pull GE turbines. Give it to another vendor if Reagan continued to tax on the agency. Reagan was out there saying that the flood savings from what the Tennessee Valley Authority was doing were not worth what it cost. During the Eisenhower administration, this is not a problem. When Kennedy becomes president, there starts to be an issue with this. Also, the Kennedy administration and the Justice Department are going after some large companies. And GE, it's patently clear, is having meetings with other companies. There's some price fixing going on in the utilities industry. The Justice Department is after this. They would end up paying a fine. Not as large as the fine the government wanted, but a fine nonetheless. And during the negotiations and settlement, General Electric Theater is taken off the air in 1962. Now, if you listen to one of Ronald Reagan's son, Michael Reagan... If you listen to Thomas Reed from his 1968 presidential campaign, later a member of his administration, they believe strongly that Robert Kennedy had a hand in Ronald Reagan's firing. One of the things that Reed says is he was running his 68 presidential race after Reagan had become governor, became a name. It was kind of lackadaisical. And then Lyndon Johnson jumps out. Robert Kennedy is one of the leading candidates on the Democratic side. He jumps in Ronald Reagan starts to intensify his presidential campaign at that point. And when Robert Kennedy is in turn assassinated, Ronald Reagan's interest in the campaign drops off a bit. So there's a a bunch of evidence that Ronald Reagan thought this about RFK. Not something he said publicly, but there's a bunch of evidence of that. There isn't as much that it actually happened. Biographer Stephen Hayward said, This has been floating around for a while. I'm not sure if the Kennedy antitrust inquiries were aimed at uh, getting Reagan off the air. Another factor in canceling the program is that GE Electric Theater had run up against a very popular TV program on Sunday nights, Bonanza, and it no longer owned the Sunday spot. By 1964, Reagan is free from the shackles of being a company spokesperson and now can just get involved directly in politics. And he does in a major way. Reagan's General Electric Theater his work with Bull War, who would continue to be a mentor and help him raise funds to eventually run for governor of California, and to a lesser degree, his conservative father-in-law, Nancy Reagan's father, and his own new wealth, and the effects that taxes had on his new wealth. I think that gets you to enough of the recipe of how the straight-up actor who was comfortable with liberals, who visited Truman's White House, spoke for him on the Whistle Stops tour, became a conservative. So in 1964, as Goldwater is running as a conservative, and his campaign is a very different one from the rest of the party, as he's running, many Republicans, Scranton of Pennsylvania, Rockefeller of New York, Romney of Michigan, refuse to help Barry Goldwater when he gets the nomination. Dwight Eisenhower, the former president, Richard Nixon, the former vice president at this point, also dodged full-throated statements of support. What's clear is Goldwater's hard right is not where the GOP is in 1964. But Reagan is there with him. The following pre-recorded political
0: program is sponsored by TV for Goldwater Miller on behalf of
1: Barry Goldwater, Republican candidate for president of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, we take pride in presenting a thoughtful address by Ronald Reagan. Mr. Reagan. Now, if government planning and welfare had the answer, and they've had almost 30 years of it, shouldn't we expect government to read the score to us once in a while? Shouldn't they be telling us about the decline each year in the number of people needing help? The reduction in the need for public housing? But the reverse is true. Each year, the need grows greater. The program grows greater. When Reagan makes a speech for Goldwater on TV, an address where he's up on a podium like a candidate, it's just like the appearances that he was making. Today, we'd call it a town hall, where the people are visible in the screenshot, their support implied. He makes a speech for Goldwater that's so hard right that Goldwater is hesitant to put it on the air. Goldwater's worried that Reagan's position on privatizing social security is even too far right for Barry Goldwater. Tells him to take it off the air. Reagan says, please watch it again. Goldwater gives in.
0: Well, perhaps there is a simple answer. Not an easy answer,
1: but simple. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right, we cannot buy our security our freedom from the threat of the bomb, by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings
0: now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom, because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters.
1: The speech that he makes for Goldwater raises $8 million. And a lot of people saying, that guy, Reagan, should be the nominee. After uh, this, he writes his biography, Where's the Rest of Me? That's a line from one of his movies. But here, he attempts to say, look, I'm a true conservative with positions. I'm not just an actor. I know what I'm saying. He talks a lot in that book about how he was fighting communism as head of the Screen Actors Guild, and there were communists in California then and now. He's going to run for governor. He's going to run a campaign for president that's not talked too much about now in 1968. And he's going to be a contender when Nixon beats him for the presidential race at the convention. And when Nixon's ready to choose vice president, he's going to be an absolute contender after the 64 speech, after winning governorship of California by a million votes. In 60s politics, Ronald Reagan is a big name. He's absolutely a contender for vice president. And the one person that can veto his position on the ticket does so. Richard Nixon tells aides, oh, he's an actor. It's not clear if that really was how Nixon felt, or if he was afraid of somebody who might upstage him on the ticket. Pick the most conservative person he could, who no one knew. Spiro T. Agnew, governor of Maryland. I think the important thing about this puzzle, how Reagan became a conservative, is that it goes to modern-day politics. So when, when one says, as is happening quite a bit now, you know, Reagan was a moderate compared to conservatives. He wouldn't be allowed in the party today. I think there's some truth to these things. But if you look at this period in Reagan's life, Reagan was hardcore right conservative of the 1960s. He wasn't with the large part of the GOP party then. Definitely the question is, would this Reagan, where would he be today? He would be on the radical side, someone that wants major change, radical changes, uh, minimum government regulation, not a conservative in the sense of just, oh, let's save a little money, but radical in the sense of of seeking to greatly reduce the, the federal government. I'm tempted to say about Reagan during this period, no zealot like a convert. Now, he did serve then two terms as governor of California, two terms of president, obviously. And in both of these jobs, he made compromises, he made choices. He's going to, as governor of California, pass one of the largest tax increases in order to finance education. He'd have to walk back an attack that he made on Medicare in 1965 when he runs for governor in 67. He said, oh, no, I wasn't really attacking the idea of older people getting health care. I just think it should be means tested. He would have to walk back his privatization scheme of Social Security, which was made so clear in that speech in 1964 when he runs for president in 1980. But if you want a good sense of where he placed himself, I think this is a good indication. So for all the talk about Reagan the moderate, I think you also have to square it with that Reagan of the mid-1960s, hardcore conservative. I think that answers one puzzle of Ronald Reagan. But there's another. And for that, I think we need to hit the hyperspace button to solve another puzzle of his presidency. Now that we know how it is he came about being a person that would rely on a more conservative policy toolkit, what were the results when he became president and implemented it? What was the Economic results, as best as we can tell, of the Reagan administration. Did he achieve his goals? Was it good generally? What does it tell us about how to judge presidents on the economy? An item from a Budapest toy shop found its way into the hearts of Americans in the early 1980s. A cube consisting of 26 miniature cubes, or cubelets, each interlocking with the other cube. But each one was still permitted to move independently in different directions. Each of its six sides were colored with stickers. Red, orange, yellow, white, blue, and green. The core cubelets on each side did not move. There were 3 billion combinations. The reaction in the United States to Rubik's Cube, named after its founder, a math professor in Hungary, could only be described as a craze. All of America, it seemed, were solving puzzles. Speed cubing, or solving as fast as possible, became the rage. Competitions were held to solve it the fastest. A teenager in LA took just 22 seconds to solve the Rubik's Cube. Blindfolded solving, one-handed solving, solving with one's feet. All of these challenges were introduced. Crowd solving, where groups of people would get together in hotel lobbies and try to solve as quickly as possible in tandem.
0: Sick of being upsold at gyms?
1: My God! This popular and complex puzzle of the 1980s could serve as a metaphor for dissecting the economic results of this presidency and any presidency, but especially a famous one with critics and ardent supporters. What is an economy, really? There are so many dimensions to it. Sure. Sure the obvious. How much did the nation produce this quarter, this year? How many people are out of work? The usual questions. But you can pick at all of those things. What did those workers earn? Is the average American's life a costly one? How much is a car? How much are eggs? How much is a tank of gas? And how much did they have to pay back to the government? How much did the government spend? How much did they have to borrow? How does all that spending on Uncle Sam's credit card compare to the total economy? How much is the total economy growing? How's the stock market doing? On and on. I do feel like economic discussions begin to seem like that multicolored cube. Fix one part of the cube, and the other cubelets on the other side are all wrong, and you have to go back. Fix them, and you have to go back to the original side that needs fixing. Some are tempted to smash the cube and put it back together physically. Real partisans? may take the stickers off and put them back again in perfect colors, aligned. Reagan set himself up in his presidency for economic discussion when, during his debate with Jimmy Carter in 1980, he famously asked,
0: Are you better off than you were four years ago?
1: The same question could be asked of him then. And it was asked during his reelection and it was asked for his presidency. And by the very high-level view, the standard way we judge presidents, came into office, economy was this, left office, economy was that. It's hard to argue that Americans weren't better off. In 1980, the gross domestic product of the United States was growing at a shoddy one-tenth of a percent. In 1988, 4.2% growth. As far as the American economy goes, that's a truck chugging down the highway. Unemployment when he takes office. Almost 8%. Drops to 55 during his presidency. Inflation was 13% in Carter's time. Ouch. And it drops to 4% when Reagan leaves office. Uh, gas prices. That great American metric of how they're doing also dropped. When adjusted for inflation, gas was 3 49 a gallon real dollars when Reagan comes in office, and it's $1.89 when he leaves. Want to get a mortgage on a house? When Carter's running for re-election, you'd have to pay 18% on a mortgage. And yes, wow, compared to today's mortgage rates, the 5%, that sounds crazy. That's what it was. This goes down to 8% when he leaves office. And all of the corresponding business borrowing and government borrowing also gets cheaper. Meanwhile, on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Index triples under the Gipper's watchful eye. All of this is in league with the theme of Reagan's reelection. Record highs of 1980. Nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation of less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. And he gets 7.5% growth in the election year. Really helpful. James Baker, chief of staff, points out how after the tax cut, the economy goes up right after November 1982, an endorsement of the policy, or so he says. All of this information, averaged, great gross numbers, conform with the standard narrative. The 1980s were a great time. In a phrase, the American dream had been restored. Reagan Foundation says, From waiting on unemployment and gas lines, people had begun to doubt the country's greatness. Before the decade was through, the Cold War would be won. The Berlin War would be down. Prosperity would be here. And America would have a new hero. Stephen Hayward, biographer. The pessimist critics turned out to be wrong. And the economics major from Eureka College turned out to be right. The economy started growing in November 82. It did not stop except for slowdowns in 1990, 1991, and in 2001 that were modest by historical standards. James Baker wrote that before the 2009 crisis. To supporters of Reagan, a lasting revolution in economics had been created. And there are some things you can point to. Federal income tax rates, inflation, and the Reagan presidency changed the scope of these numbers. The other hand of the Reagan economic plan will surprise no one. Budget deficits soared. In 1975, Gerald Ford's presidency, a deficit of $53 billion. Carter's 1980 years saw a deficit of $73 billion. Reagan's 1983 budget had a deficit of $208 billion. And each year, the deficit was near that number. Gerald Ford said that Reagan was a great spokesperson for attractive political objectives, such as the balanced budget. But when it came to implementation, his record ever matched his words. The friendly Forbes magazine writing in 1988, looking back at the presidency, said, Why did the deficit increase? The answer is instantly obvious. Tax revenues were not significantly cut. Spending rose. The usually friendly Cato Institute's 1996 look back at the Reagan record contained a similar no-punches-pulled condemnation of this aspect of his presidency. The rise of the debt was large and has imposed significant restrictions on generations. The total debt of the nation tripled under Reagan, and if you subtract inflation effects, it doubled. But this could all be relative, right? Compared to the gross domestic product of the United States, the U.S. debt went from 31% to 50% during his presidency. Of course, since then, every other president has increased, and it's near 100% now. That 31 to 50% was one of the largest peacetime increases ever up to that point. Why did it happen? Did Reagan enjoy spending on the credit card? <laughs> Absolutely not. He took many measures during his presidency to reduce the deficit, including, as we talked about in the last episode, new taxes. Simply, they were not enough fueled by a large increase in the military, plus an increasing domestic budget, a never a lower domestic budget, decreased, curtailed in rate of growth, 1% average, by the way, compared to 3.5% during Carter, 4.5% with his successor, George Bush, in domestic spending, taking military spending out. Reagan was 1%, but he did the military spending. Here's what Cato Institute said. The federal government was never cut under Reagan. It was 69% larger during his presidency and 22% larger when inflation is taking out, when you look at it in real terms. You want dollars? Outlays. In 1982, $745 billion. In 1989, $1.2 trillion. But who expects a decrease? Only the most ardent supply-siders or true radical conservatives would expect a decrease in the federal budget with a growing population, with a modern economy. When you're not really dismantling few departments in the federal government, and when you're not eliminating major programs like Medicare or Social Security and didn't campaign on doing that. How could you expect anything else? You could fault Reagan for a change of scope On the deficit, the way we look at it, the way future presidents look at it. It was his administration where you began to see a normalization of the deficit. Don Regan, Treasury Secretary, was arguing in meetings nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty-three. The deficit's not important. Now, he didn't just mean to keep spending to no end, but what he was saying was we keep talking about the deficit and letting the Democrats get us into traps of raising taxes because of the deficit. We should be sticking with our guns, insisting on spending cuts. There's no problem with a deficit right now, as long as you know in the future the economy is going to grow and you're going to make spending cuts. You're going to get spending cuts out of Congress. He didn't like the pie-in-the-sky stuff that David Stockman, the budget director, had been selling. He knew that Congress was a political animal and he had to work with it. But if you could do it, all of this focus on an abstract de- deficit didn't matter. He began to get James Baker on his side, too. And James Baker would tell Reagan, you know, don't make specific, don't talk specifically about deficits. Talk in general terms, but don't give out specific deficit numbers. Reagan was never nonchalant about deficit spending, but he prioritized it lower than military spending, cooperating with Congress. We talk about unemployment and those big numbers, like from 8 to 5.5%. During the Reagan presidency, when unemployment is examined a little bit more slowly, year by year, instead of over Reagan's whole presidency, the economic results get murkier. Here's year by year. 7.6% in 1981. 97 in 1982. 96 in 1983. 7.5 in 1984, 7.2 in 1985, 7 in 1986, 6.2 in 1987, 5.5 in 1988, and 5.3 in 1989. While well, ostensibly, there was improvement. What you see from that year-by-year look, it's backloaded in his presidency. And unemployment is one of the more important figures that most people are looking at. So there were harder times for job seekers in the 1980s than most think. The peaks of unemployment in the 1980s were not seen since the Great Depression. Oh, but there are other positives about the Reagan administration. What was going up was median household income. Median household income increased from 47545 when he took office to 52306 when he left. Simply said, people earning more. For young workers, 25 to 29 year olds, the growth was accelerated. A Brookings Institution study found medium household income, 25 to 29 year olds, 54,000 when he took office, 71,000 when he left. Real GDP growth of 3.5 percent average during his presidency, better than Eisenhower, better than Nixon, better than Ford, better than Carter, better than his successor George Bush. By the end of the Reagan years. The American economy was one-third larger than when it began, leading one economist to say that it was like another California had been added to the economy. Output per business hour of work, a measure of productivity, increased one and a half percent under Reagan. Now, that productivity increase is not as good as what Clinton got during his presidency or George W. Bush, but it's better than the 70s. The productivity stat also involves workers working more hours. So <laughs> like so much of this discussion, it all depends on your perspective, right? Maybe it's a boss that's sitting there.
0: <coughs>
1: Woohoo! Productivity gains. They're very often tied to increases and raises. So did that happen? Well, actually, if we look at pure wage growth, it didn't necessarily. Salaries did. But just pure wage growth, wages declined from $11 an hour on average, real inflation-adjusted basis, 1981, to $10 in 1988. Now, Cato Institute will tell you, if you had benefits like 401k, health insurance program, vacation, it goes up from 15 to $16 an hour during this presidency. But, you know, health insurance is nice. It doesn't put steak on the table. The 80s, style wise, were an elegant, celebratory time, at least the mid to the later 80s. Alex P. Keaton, the boy of Reaganomics, proving his hippie family wrong on family ties. Different strokes, where a rich white patrician rescues two black children from poverty. Silver Spoons, where Ricky Schroeder, now Rick Schroeder, is saved by his rich father. He has never met, and now lives in a mansion playing giant video games. Sports cars, transams, white-suited detectives in Miami riding boats, lifestyles of the rich and famous, and yes, a fellow named Donald Trump, who built palaces in gold in New York City and Atlantic City, New Jersey. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Yeah, the rich got richer during Reagan's presidency. It's absolutely true. This is from Cato again, a libertarian and Reagan-friendly. The wealthiest five percent of Americans increased their share of total income from sixteen and a half percent to eighteen point three percent during a Reagan presidency. The poorest fifth, you know, the poorest quintile. If you're dividing all the income earners in the United States into five blocks called quintiles, right? On the top end, we discussed the rich. Now the poorest fifth fell from 4.2% share of total income to 3.8% share of total income. Yet there is another point to make here, and it always must be part of these discussions. That total box of income split into five parts. The whole thing got bigger. The pie got bigger. So even as the share changed, even as the last fifth got less of the total pie, the pie itself got bigger. Plus, there was mobility. A U.S. Treasury study done in 1992 found that 85% of the poorest quintile of households, so that last fifth we were talking about, 85% of them in 1979 moved into a higher one in 1988. Moving up. 60% of that second poorest quintile would move up. And 47% of the middle quintile would move up. What do you got? That's almost half of all households moved to a higher quintile during the 1980s. So yeah, rich got richer. A lot of other people moved up as well. But wait, what about the last two quintiles? The second richest quintile and the richest quintile? Well, they didn't go down for the most part. Only 19% of households moved down. And some of that is the richest. Some is the richest fifth quintile moving into the fourth quintile. So sliding a bit, maybe the loss of business or lost a big job. No one's going to cry over that too much. Most grew or stayed the same. So mobility is another dimension to consider in addition to all those aggregate numbers we discussed. I think we've got the blue, the yellow, and the orange side of our Rubik's Cube solved, don't you? But we've got a couple other issues to tackle. So let's hear from our Reagan critics. The economist Paul Krugman has the high peak theory. It's very simple. He looks at all of this data that I'm telling you about, and he says, look, nothing to see here. It's a peak of misery in 1981 and 1982. So incredible, you couldn't believe it. Big loss of manufacturing jobs. A lot of people not getting jobs until much later in the Reagan presidency. Thousands of business failures. Bad times. And then like a sled down the hill, sure, Merrily we ride through the late 1980s, but it was all the result of that high peak. And there's always, after a high peak of recession, you know, there's always a recovery. The author of Tear Down This Myth notes how the country's economy dived right afterwards. In 1990, there was a recession. So to some extent, this is just the luck of the draw when Reagan's presidency fell. But some of that is the oil shock, the Gulf War that led to that recession of 1990. So take it a little away from economics. He notes how Reagan was unpopular upon leaving office. You know, not the the month that he left office. A poll showed that he was quite popular. But a few years afterwards, his successor injects some kinder and gentler language into the mix at the Republican convention in 1988. Kinder and gentler nation. Just who do we think he was talking about? Nancy Reagan asked that question kinder and gentler than who, she told some friends. Bush does not pursue Reaganomics. He increases spending, increases taxes. 1990, there's a tax that he works out with the Democrats in Congress about an increase of about one-half of a percent of GDP, much more like the 1982 version of Reagan than the 1981 version of Reagan. George Bush is. If Reagan's politics, if Reaganomics were so successful, his GOP successor should have embraced it. And popular support for doing so should have been there. It doesn't appear to be that that is the case. What about revenues into the government? Well, this is interesting because one of the main arguments of 1981 are, if you're going to cut taxes, income taxes, and these are fairly large cuts, 10%, 10%, and 10% in each of the first three years, never abandon them, you're going to lose revenue. That did not happen during the Reagan presidency. 1982, when the first tax cut takes effect, government takes in $618 billion. And by 1989, the government takes in $991 billion. If you hear someone saying, you know, we cut taxes, you know, cutting taxes leads to a decline in revenues, the Reagan example doesn't provide evidence for that. It also, though, can't help you with an argument of a true supply sider that there's going to be a large increase in revenues went from $618 billion in 1982 to $991 billion in 1989 in terms of taxes taken in in those years. That's not exceptional growth.
0: You
1: know, that's about 62%. It was 63% under Clinton's presidency, 59% of George W. Bush, 66% under Carter's presidency. Tax revenues tend to go up over the time of an administration. Plus, Reagan created new taxes on gas, payroll, business fees, and reduced deductions, which also contributed to that. So it wasn't just the the strength of the lion economy alone, or some magic supply-side principle scribbled on a napkin. As the New Republic asks, did the pent-up power of the American economy gush forth as the president's supply-side cultists had predicted? Did Americans save and invest a larger slice of the GNP? No, GDP growth with 3.5%, nice, but not overwhelming, and Americans saved less. I could see someone saying, Bruce, what does all this mean? Play the game the way it's supposed to be played. Here's how it goes. President comes in, economy's at X, he leaves at Y. Give us those numbers, and that's all we care about. That's the way we traditionally apply the test to presidents. That's the way Clinton was tested. That's the way President Obama is about to be tested. And it favors Reagan when you do that. A more nuanced approach sees passive factors as responsible, perhaps, for the recovery. And also sees side effects, deficits, the growth of government that have not yet been solved. I'm not a strict believer in the notions that presidents affect the economy. Did a whole podcast on this. I see it as one of the fibs of American politics, that the president creates jobs, that they sit there with a lever and control the economy like that. I don't think they deserve direct reward or direct blame for what happens during their presidency. So this is all a bit easier for me. But I think looking at history to look at the presidency of Reagan is not useful if it's just to refight the battle of Reagan in the 1980s. We have our own politics to argue about. But it's good if the past can teach us something about the present. We know Reagan wanted a revolution. His supporters did, too. But it is difficult to prove any major fundamental transformation in the economy, co it with the rhetoric of Reaganomics or the supply-siders. And the negative effects of the policies are evident along with positive effects. One of the things that the Brookings Institution notes looking at wage growth under presidents is that President Reagan and President Clinton came at things from different ideologies, yet economies grew under them. And maybe that should give us some question as to how we view presidents in the economy. The simultaneous and multivariate nature of an economy means separating out which policies worked and which one didn't is difficult. If we could get a president to pledge to just do one thing over the course of their presidency, we might have some inkling of a measure of how that policy worked. Even if we were able to do that, there are still factors outside what the president's in charge of that affect an economy. When we look at presidents this way, it might say more about us. Than them, and we might have to change our view. Reagan is helped by two factors that are difficult to assign to his own policies. One is that the one power source in Washington that he could not influence, Reagan could influence the Congress, especially in his first year, but he could not at least immediately affect the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Paul Volcker was in the middle of his policy, breaking the back of the recession in the 1980s. And he does this by raising interest rates. All right. The policy does not begin under Reagan. It's in mid-policy when Reagan is sworn in. The prime rate, the base rates that interest rates are going to be based on, how expensive is money going to be to borrow? For you buying a house or someone starting a business or for many other purposes. It's 11.25 in December 1978. After Volcker is appointed, it goes up to 15.25 1979, and he keeps rising. 16.75 in February 1980, 17.25 in March, December, 18.5. 19% when Reagan is sworn in, and 18% by the October of Reagan's second year, 1982. It is only then that it starts to reduce, but the Fed reduces rates slowly. It's not until 1985 when the prime rate gets under double digits. Reagan has no choice in the matter. Carter has chosen Volcker. In fact, Jimmy Carter deserves more credit for the Volcker pick. Because while all presidents choose the Fed chairman, Carter exerted more control in the Volcker choice because he made the current Fed chair his Treasury Secretary in 1979 which opened up a vacancy in the Fed earlier than the normal six-year Fed chair term. He wants a shakeup. When Reagan runs against Carter, beats Carter, is sworn in, while he's making speeches to Congress, pushing his policy, persuading congressmen and senators. During all of this, there is a separate policy organ, the Federal Reserve, making an economic statement he cannot argue with or do anything about. Don Reagan, Treasury Secretary, said, we were hitting the gas pedal while the Fed was hitting the brakes. Now, many uh, Reagan defenders, Reagan supporters, including Cato, including Arthur Laffer, who came up with the Laffer curve was a big supply cider, insist. Reagan deserves partial credit for this, too, because he always supported Volcker. In fact, he reappoints him in 83, even though he didn't appoint him originally. And he never attacked the Fed. Reagan had good popularity. He could have came out against the Fed. He didn't. In fact, that meant that Reagan took some of the blame on, and the 1982 recession was called the Reagan recession. So you've got to give credit to Reagan for this. That's possible. He certainly didn't. It's questionable, though, if a president could unleash on a chair that's unelected, and how effective that would be. It might be like wasting your political capital against a brick wall. But Reagan never had that moment we went to the Fed and said, Mr. Volcker, tear this wall of inflation down. He never had that moment. He did, however, try to meet with Volcker twice. And the purpose of the meeting was to get him to ease up a bit. And his Treasury Secretary, Don Regan, was meeting with Volcker all the time, called him a nanny of the banks, really did try to get him to lower interest rates. So, No public attacks, yes. Sound money was part of the Reaganomics platform, ostensibly, yes. So was budget surplus. No attacks on the Fed chair, blaming him for everything, but also he was doing what many other presidential administrations do, trying to lobby the Fed for a favorable policy. And by 1983, that had begun. It's not entirely clear whether Volcker's actions in causing a recession to fight inflation was effective. Because simultaneously to Volcker's action, the price of oil was dropping. It dropped during the Reagan years. And this is one of the more significant cost factors that drives up prices, drives inflation. And the drop in energy prices is going to have an impact on domestic policies because it's going to make gas cheaper, but it's going to make energy costs cheaper. It's going to make prices of everything a little cheaper during the administration. And it's going to have an effect on foreign policy because a major export of the Soviet Union is oil. And in fact, it's the way that the nation is financed. Here, too, Reagan supporters do argue that Reagan deserves some credit. After all, in 1981, that tax bill that he passed, first went out of the gate, it wiped out Carter's windfall tax on oil excess profits. That encouraged domestic production. Yet, oil production in the U.S. does go up, but it does never goes up as much as where it had been in the 1970s, say. It increases during his first term by 400,000 barrels per day in U.S. domestic production, maybe about 5% from where it was when he takes office. The world market at this time is 55 million barrels per day. Reagan's also credited with pressuring Saudi Arabia. Remember, Reagan is friendly to the nation. He gets AWACS. These are fighters that Saudi Arabia wants and Israel certainly does not. Reagan goes to battle even with his own Republicans in Congress. No holds barred. Threatening congressmen who oppose him on this, who want to support Israel. He gets the AWACS delivered for Saudi Arabia. His administration lobbies Saudi Arabia, tries to get them to stop doing what they had been doing since the 70s, which is holding off on producing oil to get the price up. Saudi Arabia begins to do this early to mid-1980s. Now, Administration supporters say Reagan deserves credit for this. This was a good result of his policy. There are, though, other reasons for the kingdom to abandon this policy. They had been suffering. Among the OPEC nations, they were the ones producing the least potential that they had. They were holding off. They were the ones that were saving barrels in order to keep the price up. They're getting a little tired of this in the kingdom. Cash-hungry, wanted to abandon the policy. Plus, Prices were going down because of other methods too, conservation, fuel-efficient cars, the recession. Either way, inflation and the related oil price reduction are the two major factors. In other words, in all of this Rubik's Cube, that is the easiest thing to pull out and said this is what Reagan did during his presidency. And yet, they're probably the two most controversial as well. Not going to say there was no impact. Any president has impact on these policies, the most controversial. If we don't come to an answer, we do come to an end to our economic puzzle. This is part three.
0: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own.